So a huge congratulations to all of you because the five borough bike ride did not prevent you from getting here. Um, you have a level of perseverance that I am very proud of. Um, if you're a, one of our students and you're here for the youth ministry, the youth ministry service is about to begin, and so you can join the youth over by the coffee, and they'll head out. Um, I just have a couple of announcements. Uh, my name is Logan. I'm the lead pastor here at Lower Manhattan Community Church. Um, if this is your first time and you endured the five-borough bike ride to get here, next Sunday is going to be so easy for you. Uh, but we would love to get to know you. There's a QR code that we'd love for you to scan. We'd love to get your name and email and follow up with you. Uh, because we want to invite you into all that our church is doing. And you're joining us at a really important season in life, our church. We're, we've been, uh, we started last week a series called The Spirit-Filled Life, but it is a focus on getting to know God the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a mysterious topic. It's not something that we focus on regularly. But during this season, we're going to be doing it not only on Sundays, but throughout the week with a Bible reading plan. And we start today... And this next week, we're going to be reading through Acts chapter 1 through 3. Um, and Marcy, um, our spiritual formation minister, is leading a group that's going to be discussing that every Sunday night. So if you'd like to be a part of that, you can email her, marcy at lowermanhattanchurch.com. Uh, but today, one of our pastors, Dan Carpenter, is going to be preaching from Acts chapter 1. So he's going to be kicking that off for us. Uh, but before I read the scripture, and before Dan comes, I would love to just pause and pray for us. Um, and then we'll read the scripture and we'll hear what God has to say through Dan. So pray with me. Father, we want to know you. And so we know that you share that desire. That you desire for us to be connected to you, experience your presence. It's why you sent Jesus. It's why you have sent the Holy Spirit. So inform us today about who the Holy Spirit is. Inform us as we enter into this of what it is for us to be a people full of your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, as I was praying, I just I realized that there's one more celebration that we have to do, and it's for people that aren't here. So you're going to have to cheer really loudly because they're surely going to watch the live stream later. Uh, but I, many of you know, Moses and Sherry were expecting their firstborn, and I'm happy to announce that on Friday, they welcomed Chloe Josephine into the world. Um, so, um, they are in the baby phase of desperately desiring rest, <laughs> so leave them alone and pray for them. Sound good? Um, but we rejoice with them as we rejoice uh, with all of you who have received good gifts from God. And so we're thankful for that miracle, and we can't wait to meet her. Um, let me read Acts chapter 1. Here we go. Read along with me on the screen. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven— after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? 
He replied, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. A few verses later, it says, so now, they were speaking to each other, it says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. This is God's word. Please give a warm welcome to Dan Carpenter. Good morning. Hey, I was sitting, uh, usually I sit in the couches in the back. I sat up front today, and when I sat down, I think I was the sixth person to sit down at 1032, because you're all on time. So it's nice to see it filled in behind me. Welcome this morning. Um, this morning I want to talk about this, this passage, but one word in particular, uh, witnesses. Jesus told his disciples to be witnesses. We okay? Switch. Where, here? Oh, Logan's got it. I need to do anything or just, oh, just talk right into it. This is new for me. <laughs> uh, let me start over. Good morning. This morning we're looking at Acts 1, um, where Jesus is giving his final instructions to his disciples before he ascends to heaven. There's this period of 40 days where he's resurrected and he's around for a little while and then he leaves again. And he spends that 40 days explaining to the disciples what the heck has been going on? Because clearly they didn't understand. And he shows up to them over and over again. I love this. The verse says he repeatedly proves to them that he's alive, which sounds really weird. Um, but during this 40-day period, he explains everything, and he gets them rehyped up. The kingdom is coming, and they say, okay, we're ready. Is the kingdom coming now? And he says, well, no. I'm going to leave again, and I'll be back. And in the meantime, I need you to build my kingdom. And he gives them a single, simple instruction, which is, be my witnesses. When I read the Bible, uh, I'm tempted to read fast because it feels like you accomplish more. Like if you read four chapters, that's like more holy than if you only read a few verses. But the Bible can be hard. Like a lot of these words don't make sense just on their face. Like justification, right? You can learn what justification means, but if you just read something you are justified in the Bible, most people are not going to understand on any kind of deep level what that really means. And a lot of the Bible is metaphor and analogy, which makes sense because it's talking about complicated, complex things. Uh, and somewhere it says, he is the vine and we are the branches. You could read that quickly, but you're not going to understand it very quickly. And that's why I like this verse. Because witnesses is not complicated. I've tried to think it was complicated, to separate myself from the disciples, right? Because after Jesus told them, be my witnesses, they went casting out demons, healing people, 
writing books that became part of the Bible. So maybe witnesses is this big, complicated thing, but it's obvious from Scripture that it's just not. Witnesses here means the same thing it means if I told you, will you please be my witness? Will you come witness this? It just means see a thing and then tell people what you saw. Right in Acts 1, we get a great definition of this. So you might have heard Judas betrayed Jesus, and then he felt bad about it, and then he died. It's not totally clear the death thing, but he's definitely dead. And Peter explains to the other disciples, we have to replace this guy. He refers to the Psalms. They don't give me a footnote for that, but somewhere in the Psalms it says there's going to be a missing one and you have to replace him. So they have to get another disciple. And we know now the disciples' mission is to witness. And so the job description here is going to tell us what does witness mean. And what Peter posts on, uh, what do people use now? Indeed.com, Monster, something. What Peter posts is, we need somebody who was there the whole time, who saw all the things that we saw, everything Jesus said, everything he did, his death and his resurrection. That's what they need. That's the prerequisite for being a witness. So obviously, it just means the thing that we think it means. Okay? Good. That's like, we've level set now. I didn't go to seminary. Um, okay. So, we know what witness means, but... Obviously, that's different for them than for us because they were there. Like I just said, the job posting was for someone who was present the entire time, and nobody in this room was present for any of that. So is it relevant to us at all? The answer, I think, is yes. It's clearly yes, because Jesus isn't actually giving them a new instruction. What he's giving them is focus. God has always given his people this instruction. The mission has always been, let me do stuff for you, and then go tell people what I did. That's how he gets the word out about himself. He chooses people to experience his goodness, and then he tells them, you have to go show people what it's like. You have to tell them what happened. That's the way he communicates himself to humanity. So when he saved the Israelites from Egypt in Exodus, he brings them out, and then he teaches them songs about the thing he just did so that they'll know how to tell other people about it. In the Psalms, David repeatedly says, I will sing of your goodness. I will tell of your goodness. I will tell people what you've done for me. Isaiah refers to God's people as witnesses. My favorite example of this, maybe, just helping us understand what it means, is Paul. So Paul was like a bad guy, and then he met Jesus in this very incredible scene on the road to Damascus, and then he became a good guy. And in that moment, when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus told him, you will be my witness. And we know exactly what that means because Paul can't shut up about it. Every time Paul gets cornered, he just tells the same story over again. He just tells people what happened to him. He barges into town. He starts yelling about Jesus as Lord. People get mad at him. They're threatening to stone him. And he says, wait, I'm not trying to teach some heresy. I didn't learn this anywhere. I'm not writing a book. I'm just trying to tell you what happened to me. That's it. I'm just telling you about my own personal experience. You can do that too, Right? And we have to, because that's the mission of God's people. So, here's the problem. Most of us don't do it, and so you have to listen to a sermon about it. And so here we go. <laughs> this morning, I have three points. That's how sermons start. The first is uh, what it means that God calls us to be witnesses. The second is seen, and that gives away a little bit of the first one. And the third point is understanding. 
So what does it mean that God calls us to be witnesses? I think to me, and this is, I didn't go deep dive into scripture for this. This just seems obvious to me, which I feel pretty safe about because I've convinced you all that witnesses means a thing you understand. I think there's three parts to being a witness. You have to see stuff. You have to understand what you saw. And then you have to tell people. And so if we're not doing it, there must be a breakdown in one of those three areas, right? And I tend to think it's in the telling. That's like my instinctive understanding here. That's what I've always been encouraged to do. Tell your friends. Evangelize. Witness is even used as a verb, right? Witness to your friends. Witness to your neighbors. I don't think telling's the problem. Because I live in New York. And I've met you people. And if you do anything that you really enjoy, if you have any experience you really like, you won't shut up about it. If you get into a new restaurant where the food is actually good, you'll go around fishing for people to ask you about it. Oh, did you do anything interesting this weekend? And then you just go blank while they talk about their boring weekend. You say, well, I went to the new restaurant, and there was a radish that tasted like beef. <laughs> okay. And then when you run out of people to tell, you write about it online to tell strangers for free, which I don't really get. But the point is, when you know something is good, you don't keep it to yourself. You tell everybody. If you're a new restaurant in New York City, you don't have to advertise past the first weekend if you're any good. In fact, the problem you're going to have is there's going to be people lined up around the block. All your deliveries are going to be late, and people are going to start complaining. Nobody goes there anymore. It's too busy. But we don't have that problem here, right? I don't have to repeat this sermon when I finish because the people who showed up late are lined up outside. I can see the empty chairs. Like, God is not our cronut. So we need to figure out, where's the breakdown? And like I said, it's not in the telling. So it must be in either the scene or the understanding. And it's probably both. So that's what I want to dig into, those two areas. So point number two, scene. How do we learn to see what God's doing? Let me back up for a second. I want to, like, motivate you to pay attention for the rest of the sermon because I'm already losing interest in myself. I think it's the microphone in my hand. But when I say this is the mission of God's people, I don't mean, like, this is your boring assignment. I mean, this is why God does great things for his people. God is in the business of making witnesses, of doing stuff that is so cool that you can't help but tell other people about it. That's how he gets his name out there. And so if you become one of those people, God does crazy cool stuff for you. Like that's the gig. So you can opt in and have a life that is overflowing in the goodness of God, or you can opt out and do whatever crap you guys did this weekend, which is not as good as the radish or whatever. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so scene. I just want to give you like two easy ways to learn how to see. Because I think the problem is you think you see God, and it's actually kind of lame. Like, when you think about what would I tell my friends about God, it's kind of boring. You tell them, like, I really enjoy the community at church. I like the bagels. The coffee's good. There's music. It gives me a sense of belonging. And that's good, and I'm happy you have those things, but I can understand why you haven't 
told anyone because there's other ways to do that. Like there are people who like dress up in medieval gear and fight each other on the weekends in the woods and they also have a sense of community and they also eat weird food and they also enjoy their friends. God is better than that. And so how do you put yourself in a position to see the better stuff, the stuff you won't be able to help but tell other people about? That's what the, dis the disciples had, right? Like they had seen Jesus do the craziest stuff. He had brought people back from the dead. They saw people who couldn't walk and then could because Jesus told them to. They saw water turn into wine. They like that one. They saw Jesus die and then they saw him come back to life. And so when he explained to them what all that stuff was, of course, it was easy for them to run out and tell everyone. It wasn't like he found a bunch of rule followers or a bunch of extroverts and that's why they were so good at what they did. They were so good at what they did because they were juiced to go out and tell people. They were enthusiastic. The thing that they saw was way better than the stuff you had seen. So how do you become like them? Like I said, we weren't there. But God is still here. Right? Jesus is not sitting physically in that chair right there. I'm confident of that. But the Holy Spirit is here. Like Logan told you last week, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not like an idea or a feeling. It's a person. He is a person. And he's still doing stuff. He's still doing the same stuff. In fact, Jesus said he will do greater things than Jesus had. So why aren't you seeing it? So two quick ways. First, you've got to put yourself in position to see it. And the way I recommend you do this is listen for some instructions and then just do what he tells you to do. A simpler way to say that would be obey, but obey makes my shoulders tight. So we're going to say listen and follow the instructions. And I'll give you an example from the Bible. It's one of my favorites. Jesus' first miracle. The first witnesses ever to Jesus doing a miracle were not disciples, was not royalty, wasn't even his family. It was two, un or, I don't know if it was two, it was some number, plural, of unnamed servants at a party. He was at a feast, a wedding feast, and his mother came and told him they ran out of wine. And he was kind of rude to her about it. And then she told the servants, just do whatever he tells you. And Jesus looked at them and said, take the water out of those buckets and put it into those buckets. And so they did, because they were going to do what he told them to. And then he said, now take the water out of those buckets and bring it to the master of the feast. And they did. And the master of the feast said, this is the best wine. Why did you save it so long? And he had no idea where it came from. The first guy to taste the first miracle didn't witness it. He had no idea what happened. The disciples didn't know yet. It was these guys who happened to be standing there who listened to what Jesus said and then did it. They got to witness the first miracle Jesus ever did. Oh, thank you. And you can bet they told people about it because that was wild. That's it. It's simple. Just listen and then do the thing because you might witness a miracle. Again, the Holy Spirit is a little different than Jesus, right? It feels harder to you to listen to the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's actually harder. I think it's just easier to ignore him because you have so many different voices in your head, right? So let me do two more things. This is sub-bullets. One way to get into this is just when your pastor tells you to listen to God for instruction, do it. Here at LMCC, we have like kind of a rhythm of the stuff we focus on each year. And there's a few things that we always do because we've seen such amazing success, such 
testimonies come out of it. We've seen people made witnesses, and one of those is giving. I'm not going to get like deep into it, but just so you know, every year towards the end of the year, the pastors give some sermons about the importance of giving financially to God. And they ask you to pledge a certain amount of money you're going to give to the church. And they say, before you pledge, hear from God what your number should be. So you can do that. And I recommend you do that because we've seen so many testimonies come out of this. And what I mean by testimonies is people talking about their own finances into a microphone to other New Yorkers, which is weird. And they wouldn't do it unless that act of listening and obeying had turned into something, had turned into something so good they wanted to tell other people about it. But let's say the pastor doesn't tell you every week a specific thing to listen to God for. What's another way to do it? But like I said, it's not so much about listening as it is ignoring the other voices, not ignoring the Holy Spirit. You can start really small with this. All the time you're feeling these little nudges or suggestions to do something that seems good, right? A friend comes to mind, maybe you should give them a call. You see someone who looks like they might need some help, maybe you should help them. But the other voices in your head tell you, they don't want to hear from me, that person's going to think it's intrusive, I don't have time for that. Just tell them to shut up. Just do the thing. Sometimes the idea sounds stupid. Like, let's say, moving water from one set of buckets to another set of buckets. <laughs> You're not going to hear anything that sounds much stupider than that. Just try it. It's not always going to be God. You're going to hear wrong sometimes. But if you want to learn to recognize the voice of the Holy Spirit, you have to try. So act on these things. Because you might see a miracle. And then you might get us a line outside of the church. And again, I don't want that because the church needs it. I want it because the fact that we don't have it means that none of you are experiencing all of this goodness God has for you. So that's the first way to see God do stuff. Second suggestion. Why don't you ask him to? Ask him to do miracles for you. That's what we see in Jesus' ministry. Most of the miracles he does... A lot of the miracles he does, I didn't do the math, people have asked him to do, right? So there were a lot of sick people in a lot of these cities, but it was the woman who crawled through the crowd and grasped the hem of his garment. She was healed. The friends who brought their crippled friend, tore a hole in a roof, lowered them down, and insisted on Jesus healing him, he got healed. If you want God to do stuff like that for you, ask. And the asking is important. Because it's, the Spirit uses your prayers to train your eyes on the thing God is doing. God doesn't want to do a bunch of stuff that you don't realize is Him. We are quick to rationalize away the good things that happen to us. We deserve them. We earned them. We got lucky. It was chance. But when you pray, when you ask God for something, and then He does it, then you'll see where it came from. A few years ago, Alex Taylor helped me to see this in Exodus. You know the story of Moses and the ten plagues? You've seen Charlton Heston handle that business? A lot of the plagues didn't end on their own. They didn't have like a set deadline. They were only going to last a little while. What happened was Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let the people go. And Pharaoh said, if you'll, let, if you'll end the plague. And Moses said, okay, tomorrow at 10.15, I'll pray, and I'll ask God to end the plague, and then he will. And then you've got to let us go. And so the next day at 10.15 or noon or whatever it was, he would pray. God, please end the plague. And God would. And everybody would know who ended the plague. There would be no confusion. 
It's not like some fresh water came down the Nile or all the frogs got sick of being there. They knew. Moses prayed. He told us how this was going to work. He was going to pray. God was going to do it. He prayed. God did it. Everybody became a witness of the miracle. So ask God to do miracles for you so that you can see what he's doing. So that's seen. That's the second point. The third one, though, is understanding. Because as confident as I want to be that once you see these good things, you'll go tell everybody, you might not. And don't feel bad about it. Like, it's pretty normal. This is how the disciples were. This is why Jesus had to stick around for 40 days after he came back to life, because he had to keep explaining to them what had happened. When they saw Jesus do miracles, they were impressed and confused. They weren't running around telling everyone what Jesus was doing because they didn't know what the heck Jesus was doing. Why is he here? What's the plan? If I go tell someone that he healed the lame man, they'll be like, that's cool. I'm not lame. So what's in it for me? They didn't understand the significance. And worse, I don't know if it's worse. Also, they get scared. They start rationalizing away what he did. When Jesus died, they were not standing out on the corners screaming, he's coming back in three days, don't worry. No, they were terrified. They were confused. They were hiding. Even before he died, he'd barely been arrested. Peter's already denied him three times. That's you too. God has done stuff for you that you either didn't understand or you really quickly rationalized away. Well, that couldn't have been God, because as good as that was, now there's a bad thing. And if there's a bad thing, then why would I talk about the good thing? I asked for that thing, he gave it to me, I asked for this thing, and nothing happened. Was it even him the first time? Or am I just shaking a magic eight ball? And so the whole thing breaks down. This is an essential piece, the understanding. And God's not leaving you on your own for this understanding. I'm not telling you to like go do a bunch of work to understand what's going on. The way the disciples came to understand is Jesus in person himself explained what the heck was going on. Like I said, in the verse Logan read, it says he, he proved to them over and over again that he was really alive. These people were idiots and he was so patient. And he's going to be patient with you. You are also very stupid, deeply, deeply stupid. He's going to be very patient with you. But you have to turn to him and ask him and rely on him to give you the understanding of what it is that he did. Now, with this one, I don't want to leave it vague and open. I want to give you a very specific example, and it's homework. I know I just said I was going to give you work, but this is an assignment. This is a real assignment, a thing I need you to do. And I need you to do it like starting now. Okay, so come with me. The assignment is to understand the most fundamental miracle that God has ever done for you. It's the first miracle that most Christians experience in their lives, and that's salvation. Salvation is a miracle. You did not choose God. He chose you. You didn't build your faith. He gave it to you. If you believe in Jesus, let's do this. If you believe Jesus lived died, came back to life, walked around for 40 days, and because of that, your sins are forgiven, and now you get to, after you die, be raised back to life yourself and live eternally with him in a perfect new earth? That's a miracle. 
You did not decide that on your own. I hope, because that would be crazy. So first thing is recognize that this is a miracle. But then you need to understand it well enough to be able to tell people about it. What happened, and was it good? This, it's so easy for me to see how the confusion, the misunderstanding, the distraction comes from the enemy when we look at this example. None of the people in your life who need Jesus can picture themselves having Jesus. They don't see a path from A to B. There's no book you can give them. There's no class you can put them in. There's no number of times you can invite them to Logan sermons or even mine and expect them to then suddenly believe in Jesus. I don't mean mine are better than yours. That's a joke, Logan. We can fight later. The only way you can explain to them how this works is from personal experience. What did it look like for you? Your job is not to convince them. Your job is not to defend Jesus. You are not his lawyer. You're just the witness in the stand. And all you can talk about is the thing you yourself experienced. So you better understand it, because if you don't have that, what do you have to offer? They can read the Bible themselves if they want to. You repeating what was in the Bible is helpful, and the Holy Spirit can use that, but that's not your mission. Your mission is just like Paul's. When you're backed into a corner, when people don't understand what it is God wants to do, your job is to say, I'm not trying to repeat what's in a book. I'm not trying to write a book. I just want to tell you how it looked for me. And that it was good, which means you don't stop when you got saved. You explain, what does it mean for you? I want to call this like, the way the enemy does this, I'm going to call it sabotage. He sabotages your witness. And if he can sabotage this witness, what good are you in the business of God making witnesses? Why is he going to do more miracles for you? If you've turned yourself into a person who is distracted and confused and misunderstands, if you don't have a witness, what's the next miracle for? The point is not for you to have a little goodie. Jesus didn't bring Lazarus back from the dead because he thought it would be fun. It was to show his power. Do you know what happened to Lazarus after that? He died. Like, it was temporary. All of these things are temporary. They're to point people to God. When Jesus was in the desert, uh, Satan says, oh, you look pretty hungry. Why don't you turn those rocks into bread? Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth in the mouth of the Father. What he's quoting there is the Old Testament. I think it's Deuteronomy. Where Moses is explaining to the people, God didn't give you manna in the desert because you were hungry. He gave it so you would understand, please understand, that he is the source of all good things. He is who you need. You don't need bread. He's got the bread. He takes care of the sparrows. He's going to take care of you. That's why these things happen. But if you're one of these people who can't see it, who can't understand, because you've allowed yourself to be muted, to be confused, there's no reason to give you manna. I want you to have it. I want you to see it. So you need to put these three things together. For me, the witness sabotage started really early in life. I mean, the whole thing started early in life. My life started really early in my life. 
Thank you, Maxwell. I was raised in a Christian home. I went to church from the time I was born, which means I have heard dozens of professional testimony givers, and they are good at it. And I don't mean that in a condescending or derogatory way. I mean they are good at it. The problem is they're so good that I convinced myself I didn't have one because I wasn't a hardened criminal. I hadn't been assaulted. I hadn't been addicted to drugs. I hadn't hit rock bottom. I hadn't had what I thought they were claiming that they had had, their road to Damascus moment where they went from bad guy to good guy in a flash. And so I had nothing to offer. I look back on my life, I don't know how many people's lives I came in and out of without sharing the good news that God has for them because I thought it wasn't mine to give. I thought I didn't have a testimony. But the fact is, the Holy Spirit was already working in me before I could pronounce justification, let alone explain what it meant. The fact that I was born to born-again parents is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. I have an amazing wife and kids, and I sincerely mean it is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. My parents understood the two assignments. They put themselves in a position to obey God, and they asked him to do miracles, and so he did one in my life. And so from the time I was very young, I had that faith. I had that rock in my life. And it's not, it's not like I'm wired this way, right? Like I just adopted my parents' faith. We've never voted for the same president. They love their hometown. I didn't wait till I turned 18. I graduated high school at 17. I left, and I go back for some of the holidays. Not most of them, some of them. I don't just adopt what my parents have for me, but this thing, this faith, has been a rock for me because it didn't come from my parents. It was a miracle. It was given to me by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that gave it to you. And it is good. Woo. And it is good. It has been good. I didn't go from bad guy to good guy. I don't remember a time when I could say I hit rock bottom, though I've been sad, I've been depressed, I've seen hard times, but there's never a time where I thought, I'm dead, I'm dead right now and I need to be raised back to life. But I don't know how I would have become who I am today if this isn't how my life went. I don't know how else to explain. No, I won't say it that way. I do know how to explain why I was a compulsive liar for 10 years and then stopped. It's because when I asked God to stop it for me, he stopped it by the power of the Holy Spirit. How did I fight the porn addiction that enslaved half of my generation by prayer and faith and the power of the Holy Spirit? Like I said, those are just the tastes. Those are just the nuggets to turn you back to God. The real stuff is what that all reminded me of. My hope, my motivation. I'm somebody who needs an incentive for everything I do. You all are, but I'll pretend some of you aren't because you don't realize it yet. There was a time in my life when being told to be good was good enough because I really cared about the approval of my parents, my teachers. And I'm sorry, Mom and Dad, but that didn't last for very long. There have been times in my life when I could work really hard because the next level of success and money seemed like it was going to be exciting. It was going to be fulfilling. 
And I got tapped out on that. I'm not talking about like now working at a successful hedge fund. I'm talking about the first time I pulled a double shift at Chili's and had some cash in my pocket. Like, it wasn't going to cut it. But Jesus told us that everything we do in this life has eternal value. Not only that, but you will be around eternally to see the fruit of everything you did in this life. And that's crazy. But if you believe it, it is unbelievably motivating. It is endlessly motivating. Every single decision you make matters. Every action you take matters and will last forever somehow. It is a miracle that I believe that. And a lot of days, it's the only reason I get out of my bed. Because what other motivation do you have? Everything else runs out. This is why I'm still alive. It's because I believe him. And I believe him because he gave me that belief. So that's your assignment this week. This isn't something I understood when I was younger, and it's not something that I put together in the past 48 hours. This is something I've wrestled with God with. Did you really do a miracle in me? Did it really matter? And some of this came in private by myself, but a lot of this comes in community because the Holy Spirit speaks to you also through other people. A lot of this has come from being in community groups in this church and people pointing out the fruit in my life that I didn't already see, the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in me. When I thought I hadn't changed a bit, they were quick to remind me, you're not doing those things that you were complaining about two years ago. You're not struggling with those things you were struggling with seven years ago. I've been here a while. You need to do that work directly with the Holy Spirit and in your community because the world needs your testimony and you need to be a witness if you want to see everything God is ready to do for you. The sniff out of the microphone. I just want to say one more thing. If you're here and you haven't experienced the miracle, if God hasn't given you this saving faith, there's homework for you too. If you want to experience the goodness of God, all you have to do is go back to the second tip. Just ask him to do the miracle for you. If you ask God for saving faith, he will give it to you. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like for you, but there's about 53 people in here who can tell you what it looked like for them. And if they can't, challenge them to figure it out and come back to you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for giving us your word so that we can see what your priorities are, so that you can give us focus, so that we can understand how you work. We want to be in business with you. We want to be your witnesses. We want to know that you're so good that we have overwhelming confidence in telling other people about you. Not abstractly about you, but what you've done for us in our lives. Holy Spirit, please speak clearly. Do your work right in front of our face 
and help us to understand that it was you and that it was good. In Jesus' name.